You can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. Maybe not your uh, traditional Thanksgiving service text, but um, there are certainly plenty of things to be thankful for, even as we consider this text. Now, we're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. Genesis chapter 7. I believe it's on page 5 and 6 of the Pew Bible, if you are using that. Genesis chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. This is God's Word. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of the animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wives and the three wives of his sons, with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up in the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. 
This is God's word. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we come to you, we give you thanks for your mercy and your grace to us. Even as we consider this text this evening, we ask, O God, that you would ignite within us hearts of thankfulness and gratefulness for the way in which you have worked throughout history to spare a people for yourself and for your glory. So we ask that you would soften our hearts tonight to hear your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you begin reading your scriptures at the very outset, um, right after Adam and Eve have fallen in the garden, one of the key themes that you'll begin to pick up on is this notion that there are two seeds, or two kingdoms, or two peoples, and that theme is going to run itself throughout Scripture. In Genesis 3.15, you remember, after Adam and Eve have sinned, God comes to them, and he brings about both a gracious word, but also a curse upon Adam and Eve. But he also comes to the serpent, and you remember those words in Genesis 3.15. We often will, will recite them, the first message of the gospel. But what we sometimes will fail to do is to begin at the beginning of that verse. God says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It is God himself who puts this enmity in play. It is God himself who sets the stage to bring about this kingdom against another kingdom. So there are two kingdoms, there are two seeds, and as you begin to turn the pages of Scripture, you start seeing this. You see it in the immediate next chapter with Cain and Abel. You have Cain who kills Abel, the unrighteous and the righteous. And then Adam and Eve have Seth, and that line begins to continue, and it starts to go out, and you see it running again in the sons of Cain, with the seed of Cain and Lamech, and the son of Seth and Enosh. And then you get to Genesis 6, and you get this strange text, where the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they took them, and they chose them for themselves. And there's this strange phrase, is the sons of God, there's often dispute whether these sons of God are angelic beings marrying the daughters of men, or is it the sons of God, are they referring to humans? And while not necessarily do we need to get caught up in that, I do think it's helpful, and I do think it's clear in light of the preceding sections and the following sections, that it's most probably a reference to humans, to mankind. John Murray comments on this, and he, he points out two specific ways in which this is clear. First, the preceding section, it's quite clear this is referring to humans. But more importantly, it's that God brings the judgment for this heinous act. He doesn't bring it on angelic beings. He brings it on humans. You see it in chapter 6, beginning verse 3. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And it would be strange for God to bring about judgment on angelic beings 
on humans for an act of angelic beings, given the fact that these sons of God were the ones who brought about this act. They saw the daughters of men. They took the wives. They chose the wives. And so God brings this judgment upon humans. And then the flood narrative. And at the very outset of Genesis 7, you see, again, this narrative and these seeds. Beginning at verse 1, you see that Noah is the righteous one in this generation. Things have gotten so bad. You see it in Genesis 6. Things have gotten so bad that it appears as though Noah is the lone righteous one. And so there's this contrast, this great contrast between the righteous in this world and the unfaithful in this world. Again, noting back to chapter 6, the Lord sees the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So there's this this great contrast. There's this tension between the world's corruptness and Noah's obedience and righteousness. And you see, even at the outset, and you've heard as I tried to emphasize the phrase that Noah did this, he did all that the Lord commanded him. See it in verse 5, verse 9, in verse 16, Noah, in the midst of this hostile world, remains faithful to the Lord and specifically to his word. It's the word of the Lord which Noah seeks to follow. And he does this for 120 years. And you think about this Noah is doing the same thing for 120 years. He's preaching, and he's building an ark. And we look at him and think, you know, a tough ministry. No converts. No church plants. No, no ministries. But you see, the Lord is not necessarily looking for a successful ministry. The Lord is looking for faithfulness. Noah, for 120 years, can you imagine the same thing every single day over and over again. You see, the only reason that Noah can do this is because of that phrase. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. You see, Noah understood that the only word he needs in this life is the word of God. He understood that the words of God are life-giving and that they are sufficient for all of life. Not just in the realm of some ethereal spiritual matter, but all of life. God's Word is all that Noah is focused on. He believes that God's Word is sufficient for faith and life, and for all of it. What about us? We can see this and we can think that's somewhat intimidating. I don't know if I could do this for 120 years. In the midst of an unfaithful and wicked generation, 
But you see, once again, we can see Noah and his example as the author of Hebrews picks up. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So in the midst of our, as Paul says, present evil age, how are we to live? I reckon it's the same way Noah lived. It's by the very Word of God. The sufficient and final authority for all of our life. And see, that's why Noah can live and not be concerned about the affliction that he's receiving because he's looking to the things that are not seen as opposed to the things that are seen. He's serving the Lord in reverent fear and not growing fearful about those around him. And then the author of Hebrews says he condemns the world by his life because it's so otherworldly to live that way in the midst of a wicked and evil age. And so it's this utter corruption of the world then which sets the stage for this escape. So we see the great contrast between Noah and this world in which he lives, but we also see this great escape in verses 6 through 10. Verse 7, And Noah and his sons went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Now, we can read this, and a lot of times many people will read this and think, how can this God whom you speak of, how can he do this? How can he pour out his wrath upon the world and only spare eight people? This is the way in which we think, we tend to think. What I want us to think about is to change our perspective. See, we need a new angle when we come to these questions. We need to see that God is, in fact, holy and we're not. And actually, looking at it in a different angle, instead of seeing this as this hateful God, we actually see the heart of God in this story. By changing our perspective, we actually see the heart of God. And I think we see this in two ways. First, you see it, God is speaking to Noah. You see the heart of God, that God is a speaking God. He has spoken to his people. Noah would never have known to flee and to build an ark and to enter the ark unless God had spoken. And so we see the heart of God in speaking to Noah. I don't know if you have ever experienced this, but when you have a, a little kid, whether it's your, whether your own kid or whether it's you know, a nephew or a grandchild, you'll sometimes, when you go to speak to them, you'll kind of lean down and you'll speak to them in a somewhat cute little high-pitched voice, which I'm not going to do. <laughs> but Calvin in his institute says that's how God speaks to us. He, he sort of, it's this, he calls it baby talk. He, he bends down to our level to speak to us so that we can understand him. And that's what God is doing to Noah. It's actually the very heart of God that we see in this passage. He speaks to him. But again, what about us? Some today want to hear God speaking to them. 
Friends, God does not speak to us in the same way. He does not verbally speak to us. As some have put it, if you want to hear God speak to you, read the Bible out loud. Because, as the author of Hebrews says, in those former days, God spoke. In many ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And we have received that Word of God in the Scriptures. Finally, the Scriptures are final and they are, in fact, sufficient for us. If you remember this this scene, it's absolutely astounding. It's in 2 Peter 1, where Peter is recording this scenario where he was on the Mount of Transfiguration and he sees these things. He says, I'm an eyewitness of these realities. I hear God speaking. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And what does Peter say? He says, we have a more sure word. In this word, in our eyewitness written down for the church, we have a more sure word than the very experience that we would crave in the Mount of Transfiguration. But Peter says, we have a more sure word in the Scriptures. And you see, that's the very word That's where we see the heart of God speaking to Noah. And we see the heart of God as He has spoken to us. Secondly, we also see the heart of God in that He is sparing a remnant for Himself. Again, if you were to read through the Scriptures with those glasses on, with the remnant glasses, you can find so many instances where God is saying, I'm going to spare a remnant. We see that even here, that he has chosen eight people in whom to spare in order to bring about the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And so God is, again, the heart of God to spare people for himself despite the wickedness in this world. And so, too, today God has done the same thing. And he's been doing it ever since the fall. And we are recipients of that sovereign grace that sovereign electing grace whereby He has sovereignly chose us and spared us. You think about what you are to be thankful for. Well, there's one of many things to be thankful for. Thirdly, verses 11 through 16, we see the great security that Noah has. The great security Notice again with me in verse 16. And the Lord shut him in. The Lord makes sure that Noah and his family are safe. And so just as we see the very heart of God in sparing the life of Noah, we also see the heart of God in securing the life of Noah and his family. Again, to quote Calvin, he says this regarding the Lord shutting him in. Let me just say that sometimes you could be reading, I don't know who it is, but reading Calvin, and he just just makes you laugh. He just makes you laugh. And And I hope you find enjoyment, at least in this beginning part. Here's what Calvin said. This is not added in vain, nor ought it to be lightly passed over. That door must have been large, which could admit an elephant. That's what Calvin said. 
And truly, no pitch would be sufficiently firm and tenacious, and no joining sufficiently solid to prevent the immense force of the water from penetrating through its many seams. Wherefore, Moses teaches us that the waters were not restrained from breaking in upon the ark by pitch or bitumen only, but rather by the secret power of God and by the interposition of his hand. In other words, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, reminds us that it took nothing short of God himself to close the door of the ark. Another quote that I think is, sums it up perfectly from James Boyce. He says this, When the Lord shut Noah and his family up in the ark, they were totally secure and thereby become an illustration for us of the believer's perfect security in Jesus Christ. The rains would come. The floods would rage. But nothing would touch these who had been sealed in the ark by Jehovah. It is interesting that God did not say, Noah, it's time for you to shut the door. Get your sons to help you slide it closed and throw the lock. The Lord does not place the safety of his people in others' hands. He himself throws the lock. It is said of him in Revelation 3.7, What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. End quote. And to round things off, some of you have heard me use this before, but Augustus Toplady, in A Debtor to Mercy Alone, says this, More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. More happy, yes, but not more secure. In other words, friends, you will never be more secure than you are right now in Christ. Even Seeing him face to face, there is no more security. Happier, of course, no sin, but not more secure. And so that's what we see when God himself shuts the door. He is enabling and making sure that his people are safe. The sobering reality is that just as the Lord's closing of the door meant security for Noah and his family, It also meant forever damnation for those who had not entered the ark. And so finally we see this in verses 17 through 24. The great day has finally come. The flood waters are rising. The the ark is floating. The great day of God's wrath has come upon the world for their sin. Now, if you have your Bibles, please turn over with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. It appears quite clear that Peter has this narrative in mind as he's writing these words in 2 Peter chapter 3. I want to look at a couple verses as we begin to conclude. 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll begin at verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful desires. They will say, 
Where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see, what the flood narrative does is point us even beyond to that great day of the Lord. Yes, God has promised, I will never destroy the earth with water. But I'm going to come in judgment, not by water, but by fire. The world that then was deluged by water, the world that now is consumed by fire to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. And so the need is, just as in the days of Noah, to flee to the ark, to find safe refuge in the ark, so too the need is to flee to Christ. To flee and to find refuge in Christ. There is no other hope than to be in Christ. And for those who are in Christ, that great wrath of God has been poured out on Him for you. And that is why the New Testament is so concerned about getting into Him. Paul says, get into Christ. Yes, you need Him to come into you. That's true. But he's more concerned about getting out of yourself and getting into Christ. Because it's in Christ, in Christ alone, your hope is found. All other ground is sinking sand. He is the ark in whom we find refuge from the wrath of God. There is no other escape. And if you're in Christ, Paul says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because, friends, he has taken the wrath of God upon himself on the cross for you. The great wrath has fallen on Christ in my place. Condemned he stood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. For those who are outside of Christ, you will find yourself trapped as those who were... Imagine the terror. Imagine if you've ever been underwater for too long. That feeling of terror that rises in you. The same and even far greater terror that will rise upon you on that day when Christ returns. The call tonight is to flee to Him. To come unto Him, all who are weary and heavy laden. He will give you rest. And He promises those who come to Him, I will in no wise cast you out. Because, friends, the door is shut. And so, for those outside of Christ, flee to Him. For those who are in Christ, there are those you know 
who do not know this. Even in America, there are people who don't know the name of Christ. They've never heard of this news. They don't know that there is, in the Scriptures, a day of wrath and judgment coming. They suppress that. And so, there are so many in our lives who need this word. It's not just a word of wrath, it's a word of grace. God has spoken to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we as believers in Christ, may we be faithful. May we think about those in our life, whether it's neighbors or whether it's a loved one. May we know who these people are. May we think about these people. And may we see their faces on that day of wrath coming. And may that drive us to share this news, this wonderful news that Christ has come to seek and save that which is lost. So may we be faithful in this, even as Noah was faithful to preach and to build and to leave the results up to God. May we, too, preach and build and leave the results up to God. And so it's not your traditional Thanksgiving message But it certainly is something we can definitely be thankful for. That Christ has come. And He is that ark in whom we find refuge. So as we even think about this coming week and the things that we're thankful for, may we never separate the blessings that we have received from our Lord Jesus Christ. All of our blessings, Paul tells us, come in and through our union with Him. Let me close with words from Henry Francis Light. In Jesus, I my cross have taken, he says this, hasten on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer, heaven's eternal days before thee. God's own hand shall guide thee there, soon shall close thy earthly mission, swift shall pass thy pilgrim days, hope shall change to glad fruition, faith to sight and prayer to praise. Hope shall change to glad fruition, faith to sight and prayer to praise. May those words be found on our lips as we approach that great day. And as we think about it, may we simply be thankful for the work of God saving us for himself. Let's pray. Almighty God, we have so much to give you praise for, but none more significant and important to us than the work which you have done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, applied to us by your Holy Spirit. And so we thank you that all of the blessings that we have received come from you, and the Father of lights, from whom there is no shadow or shifting. So we praise you, O God, and may our hearts delight to sing your praises and to share this wonderful news, even to those who are lost. We ask for your help. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.